This episode is brought to you by Charcoal Book Club, the only photo book of the month club dedicated exclusively to the photo book. They've just opened up a call for entries for the third annual Chico Hot Springs Portfolio Review and Publishing Prize. Submit now through December 10th for a chance to be one of the 45 artists invited to spend the week in Montana with Todd Heido, Mark Steinmetz, Andrea Modica, Alex Webb, Rebecca Norris Webb, and 11 of the most respected publishers and organizations in contemporary photography. Selected attendees will take part in portfolio reviews, listen to artist lectures, panel discussions, and commune over food and drink in the saloon in the hot springs. Submit now by going to charcoalbookclub.com and click on Portfolio Review in the top left-hand corner of the webpage. Portraiture is, we can't really just talk about it as an artful or photographic venture anymore. It's become a tool to kind of profile people and, and identify what their intentions are in society and whether or not they could become threats. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. Last month, I went to visit Farah Al-Kasimi at her home and studio in Williamsburg. After talking with her, I thought about her space and how both her studio and her living area represented different parts of her in a way. Both very smart, both refined, but in very different ways. The living space had an elegance and a lightness to it, while the studio had a sense of humor and playfulness. I even took it a step further and thought about how those rooms also reflect the different ways in which she photographs men and women. We'll get into that a bit in this episode. Farah's work explores issues of identity, beauty, and surface in the United Arab Emirates. Her work puts into question the way people are represented and speaks to and plays with traditional genres of the medium, such as portraiture. She grew up between the United States and Abu Dhabi and finally moved to the U.S. when she enrolled at Yale. Her photos have been exhibited internationally, and last year she had a solo show in New York called More Good News and published a book called Body Shop. Today, in addition to her practice as a photographer and a filmmaker, she teaches as well in the photography department at RISD and NYU. I wanted to know what the experience of first beginning to teach was like for her. It was actually a really interesting uh, moment in the way that I approached my own work because it made me think so much about access and the difference in the types of work that my students were making, um, seeing how the men had different access to public space than the women and um, you know what, what kinds of photography they were drawn to as a result. So there was a lot of like, you know, um, a lot of Alex South fans, mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, what's the one that I really dislike? Steve McCurry, a lot of people mm. who are really into Steve McCurry. When I went to go meet Justine Curlin, she was saying how she found the same thing, that she had a lot of um, international students in her, in her classes, and she was always curious to ask what their photo influences were, just so she could have a better, more well-rounded idea of their backgrounds and what they're interested in. If she had an Asian students, she would always be expecting interesting Asian influence. It would kind of like, um, uh, you, know, sh- you know, shed some light. Or mm-hmm. if they were Middle Eastern students or Indian students, she told me how she found it amazing how no matter where everyone was from, it was like Alex Soth, Joel Sternfeld, <laughs> like your classic American you know, yeah. male 70s canon. Go, or, into, well, go into the landscape, take what you want, return with the bounty. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what it is about um, that style of working that is so appealing to so many people. And I'm certainly not exempt from, you know, having been charmed by by those photographs at one point. And they are, you know, a lot of them are really beautiful. 
Um, but I think that they, they reflect a, a sense of adventure and a sense of ambition that a lot of people don't have access to. Um, and especially for me, I didn't really discover art until I was in my second or third year of college. So I came into it really late. I went to a high school that had no music or art lessons for 14 years. Um, so when I first started out, it was like, oh, this is the potential of photography, that it could enable you to go on these adventures and you know meet these people who are so different from you. And it seemed like the kind of the key to a world that um, that was so different from mine, mm. which is funny because I ended up really falling in love with it through um, through using it as an access point to the world around me that I had never really considered engaging with in in a curious way before. You mean like your per- like your your immediate surroundings as opposed to um, going into other worlds, right? Like I could yeah. never make an Alex South picture, right. or maybe I could, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't really want to right um you just said that there was in high school there wasn't any type of arts program that existed i guess i was curious if there was um much culture in your upbringing so to the credit of my parents um they forced me to take music lessons when i was young um so i took classical piano i didn't i kind of considered it this like annoying thing that i had to do after school and then one day i just i started really uh being able to play pieces that I actually was enjoying. And I started listening to a lot of French impressionism, like Ravel and, and um, I don't know, I just, I, I felt like there was something opened up. And then when I was 10 or 11, I fell in love with punk music and, and hardcore, and I started learning the guitar. So there was culture in my upbringing, but I very much credit my, my parents and my, my mother for pushing me to, um, you know, to take these music lessons, even though at the time I know I put up a fight. So you started playing piano. You got into music at a young age. That's what you enrolled at Yale in, right? Mm-hmm. You, start, you didn't start with photography. You enrolled in music. Yeah, I started, I really wanted to study contemporary music and, and composition. And you had to do all of these theory classes, which makes sense. But I was so bad at it because it was so mathematical. And I, I just couldn't, I couldn't move past that. And I also felt like the, the kinds, of, it just felt like there were so many, um, there were so many barriers to doing the thing that was exciting and joyful. And I don't know, it, I kind of fell into art by mistake. And that was an immediate, there was a lot of learning involved with that too, but it felt like I was able to articulate things in a way that didn't need um, verbal language, didn't need kind of this like quantitative um, mathematical approach. I I really think that it it was just about discovering a way of thinking that made sense and a way of articulating and expressing ideas. And then in your third year, you switch into photography. How does that happen? Honestly, it was really about the professors that I studied with. I, I, I think that I... It could have been anything, but um, I just happened to have great teachers who didn't patronize me and made me really excited about learning. When I think about it, it was really the first time that I felt like a teacher wasn't speaking down to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had had that experience a lot in high school because I, I went to school at a really terrible place where a lot of the teachers were pretty racist. 
I was kind of assumed to be stupid because I wasn't good at math or I wasn't good at science. So I think it was just the sense that like, you know, somebody saying your life is interesting and you can, you can make work about this. And so then that was when I started um, really exploring, you know, how I actually felt as a, as a person living in New Haven, far away from home. And I, and I started to see, you know, I started to use making pictures as a way to maybe draw out some of the anxieties of that, of that condition. That condition of being there, being in that environment? Yeah. I, I don't think I liked it very much. Uh, I think, I think that it was, you know, the, the weather, I think I was definitely played a really big part. (laughs) Yeah. Really. I was really seasonally depressed. Um, one of the first photographs that I took that stuck that, you know, I continue to use over the years is maybe a good analogy of how I felt in New Haven, where I lived in this apartment my senior year of college, and I was just done with the gray skies, the freezing cold, I was done. So I ordered off of the internet, probably from allposters.com or something, this 9 by 12 foot mural of a beautiful seaside paradise it looked like somewhere in thailand maybe you know it was like the the beach and then leaning palm trees into the water and i tried to install it on the kind of one big wall in my apartment except that i didn't have the right tape and there was also molding on the walls Mm -hmm. um you know sticking out so it ended up looking really pathetic where you could see all of the seams. It was like a bunch of, it was like maybe six panels and you could see every single one of the seams and they hung pathetically over each other. Um, and I ended up photographing that wall with some of the colorful lights that I had installed in my apartment and another sad attempt to, you know, transcend place and time. And that photograph ended up being something really important for me where it was like this pathetic that the patheticness or the earnestness of the attempt you know like and and the the power and sometimes failure of images to transport or to to be these portals um or to represent these aspirations that we have so i don't know that that i that was kind of how i felt where i really wanted to be somewhere else but i couldn't and those seems represented that feeling better than I could articulate it better than I can even articulate it now really yeah you know one thing about your work that that I just love the the seeing in your work is uh is is really extraordinary I mean we can talk about the subject matter and we could talk about the content that you're dealing with but the actual pictures themselves are are just so strong your graphic sense your sense of color your sense of your sense of moments I'm curious about what you were looking at when you were first getting into photography that was really exciting you. It's as simple as I was going outside more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, especially in in the beginning, so I, I, don't, I don't think I really started looking at things. Well, I looked at a lot of books, a lot of photo books, but I think it was just going outside with the purpose of looking, mm-hmm. going outside with the purpose of looking. As opposed to, you know, going to the grocery store to do something or going to whatever, you know, the coffee shop to get a coffee. It was like, I'm going to go outside and I'm going to look. Um, so I would take these three hour walks in New Haven in the dead of winter with the purpose of just looking. And um, I don't know, there's 
you notice a lot of things. I'm constantly interested in the way that people arrange visual information. Like if you go into a store and, you know, you see, um, you know, like one thing that I saw at a hairdresser was a picture of Sandra Bullock and then a plaque with the name of the Prophet Muhammad and then a picture of Mark Wahlberg, Mm -hmm. you know, and then an advertisement for hair, uh, like a like a hair product and then you know the evil eye so things like that how people arrange visual information in the spaces that they live in or work in you know and how they kind of choose to reflect themselves or their values you know back in in a physical or visual way um now i spend a lot of time on instagram mm-hmm. actually like you know not really okay so, like i screw around on instagram a lot i look at dumb things but um but also what, you know, like I, I watch a lot of makeup videos, a lot of transformation videos, what people want to look like. Mm-hmm. I look at a lot of like food arrangement Instagrams, which are really big in the Gulf. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just what what people are doing every day. Like what everyday people are are showing on the Instagram feeds. Yeah, I'm basically yeah. like a Pinterest yeah. troll. Right. Without it. Like, I don't yeah. have a Pinterest, but I treat Instagram like a Pinterest. Yeah. I'm curious what books you're looking at, like what sticks out and what do you keep on going back to? So there's uh, there's a great book, The Pleasures and Terrors of Domestic Comfort, which mm. was the catalog for that MoMA show. That's a great catalog, yeah. I have really, it. really great catalog. Yeah. Um, th- that book says a lot about possibility. What are your favorites in there? Oh man, I don't know. So many. Yeah. I like a lot of the Tina Barney photographs in there. Oh yeah. Um... I have to look at it again because it's been so long and so many of the photographers in there have just been absorbed into like yeah. my list of favorite photographers. There's so, I mean, there's so many books. A lot of my favorite books feel like objects in their own right and that they have a kind of a purposefulness to them in terms of how they're laid out, in terms of um, what kind of relationship you have to them as a viewer. So some books I really love because it feels like you're looking into a family album and they feel really personal and really private. And some books are almost like a culmination of research about a particular topic. And that's kind of how I saw my book. I saw I saw it as halfway between, you know, glossy fashion magazine and, um, you know, research notes. So I, I wanted it to reflect as an object how you would deal with the magazine mm-hmm. that was work you started to make in school mm-hmm. yeah so it basically started from uh this series of photographs i made when i moved back home after college and when i moved back home it was like coming to a completely new place and you know i would kind of see all of a sudden in my neighborhood that there's five new high-rises out of nowhere a year later. And similarly, you would be driving down the highway and all of a sudden the exit that you used to take every day is totally paved over and is something else. So I started to think about the real psychological implications of that kind of rapid growth and new wealth and what it, what it actually looked like for people who are just moving about the city every day um and i guess kind of like the frustration part to the aspiration so i made a point to go out and just you know go for these aimless walks and and really just see the the city and and kind of witness it and um 
So there, there are kind of there are a lot of moments that feel almost like the the moment that I described to you in the apartment with the the peeling wallpaper. Yeah. Where there are there's a lot of um, there's a lot of painted facades in the Emirates. There's a lot of older buildings that you know are really kind of revealing their age, but also are juxtaposed with this extremely new, shiny, you know, building next door. Yeah. So yeah. So, so that, was, that was your methodology. You were you were going. I mean, you had these ideas in your head, and then you were going out for for walks and just trying to make interesting pictures, like yeah. in, very intuitively. Mm-hmm. How do you start to to tighten that work or develop the motifs that would kind of result in the book? It happened over a couple of years, so I, I didn't really see it right away. I just felt like okay, I'm you know I'm doing this work. I'm kind of seeing it as an index, and at the same time, I was also doing this project where I was going to beauty um, beauty salons and photo studios around the Emirates mm-hmm. and asking them to make me beautiful with no other instruction uh-huh. and, you know, collecting the results of that, giving the photographers total creative license to do whatever they wanted with my image really? via Photoshop or posing or lighting. And I didn't realize until later that there was actually a relationship between those two things that I was doing, that kind of more maybe performative or action-based work and then the photographs that I was taking yeah but the thing that the thing that um the thing that inspired me to go about this project it was really almost like a research it it was like I was doing I felt like I was trying to do research because I noticed that this thing happens in the Emirates where you go to a photo studio to have your passport picture taken Mm -hmm. I mean you can go for any reason really Um, But I noticed over the years that every time I've gone to have my passport taken, even if it's been from different places, the photographer will always, in Photoshop, without asking me, will always whiten my skin to the point where my features are invisible. Really? Yeah, always. And then will always um, do these weird little Photoshop moves. I don't even know how to do them. (laughs) Where he, like, makes my lips redder and, you know, will take away the circles under my eyes or, like, whatever breakouts I might have, making me look beautiful. Right. And so I have this picture, you know, all of my passport pictures have just been like totally bleached out. Your passport pictures? My passport pictures. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I think um, sometimes they'll even do really crazy things like make your nose smaller, you know, and you don't, you don't ask for those things, but they just do them. So I thought, wow, okay, this is a trend. And, you know, does everybody do this? And the interesting thing about the Emirates, um, it is a country that is, mostly made up of immigrants, people from India, all over Southeast Asia, from the Philippines, from China, from Russia, um, from, you know, all over Africa, um, all over the Arab world. I think the country is actually maybe like 6% Emirati. Um, and so the like a lot of the people working in these studios are from a variety of backgrounds. But the thing that remained consistent across the board was the whitening of the skin. Wow. So that's not a surprise because skin whitening creams are popular all over Asia. And um, yeah, so it was it was just like, OK, what what things remain consistent, even if I don't ask for them? And so that the whitening um, and then there were other things like some people would put in backdrops. Some people would, um, I don't know, tell me to pose in a specific way. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm curious about how you think about the power dynamics in photographing, photographing other people. I'm very wary of how I can be controlling when I'm behind the camera, what kinds of instructions I'm telling, I'm giving people, what their comfort level is. So I guess with with men, it it's not that it matters less. It's just that there's a different expectation. I, when I was photographing at home, um, I think that I was I was photographing people in settings that were comfortable for them. So in kind of, you know, at home, in their bedrooms or in their living rooms. Um, so there was, a, there was kind of, um, there was less performing or posturing happening. And I was very much interested in that. And interested in maybe selecting the photographs after the fact that felt the most unguarded. With the woman that I photograph, there's there's a different relationship to visibility and vulnerability, and I'm very careful not to exploit that. Uh, oftentimes, the women's faces are not visible in my photographs, and that's intentional. Um, but it is—it's very much, you know, what the person is comfortable with. So there is, there's always a power dynamic because you're controlling somebody's image. You're controlling how they appear in the world, whether or not their identity is immediately visible. With the men, I, I think I was able to kind of maybe focus on really on what they looked like and what they were expressing through their faces uh, in a way that I'm, I think I was less concerned about maybe being a little bit uh, more exploitative than I would be if I were photographing a woman. One thing that I'm, I'm interested in that you mentioned in photographing men, and I want, I want to ask you one question about photographing men and another about photographing women, but with, first for the guys. <laughs> for the fellas. First for the fellas, yeah. You talked about wanting to make soft portraits of men. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what that means to you. It's something that I'm revisiting. Um, I think it's it's because... Well, the first thing that I want to start off saying is that a lot of my ideas about gender are very much informed by the place where I grew up. Mm-hmm. So if my definitions or my vocabulary seems sometimes reductive, it's because I'm talking very specifically from, um, from that point of view and... Uh, you know, and kind of about the people that I photograph who are of that place. So I think that a soft portrait is is a, is a portrait that kind of radiates a vulnerability or a quietness in a place where we are so often bombarded with these authoritative and, you know, hard pictures of men. And so it was it was something that I considered as as um 
as a counter to the types of portraits of, of these men that might be made in you know, in the Emirates or in the U.S., where in the U.S., I feel like most of the people I see who look like the men I know in the news are, you know, in mugshots or um, some sort of hardened photograph that says this person is a threat and you should be afraid of them. Right. Um, I mean, even if you look at the difference in in the news of the mugshots that they use or the or the portraits that they use when they are talking about a black person versus a white person who is... Um, you know, who is uh, accused of committing a crime. They always show the white person, you know, they'll, they'll always use like a headshot or, you know, a high school portrait or something that that is innocuous or soft. And they usually don't afford people of color that same humanity. Right. So thinking about um, how style and how lighting, literally how photography works as a tool to indicate something about a person and how portraiture is... You know, we can't really just talk about it as a as an you know as an artful or photographic venture anymore. It has become a really, it's become a tool um, to kind of profile people and and identify what you know um, what their intentions are in society and you know whether or not they could become threats. So, I wanted to offer you know men who were just hanging out, Mm -hmm. you know, looking, looking soft, looking maybe thoughtful or quiet or, um, just a little bit vulnerable. Yeah. And I think they really, I mean, your intentions really, really come through in the pictures. I mean, there's, you have some beautiful, beautiful, very, really soft and tender pictures of men that, that are just great. Thank you. Okay. Now a question about, um, about photographing women. You just mentioned how in, in most of your portraits of females you usually like to obscure their faces Mm -hmm. how come sometimes it's necessity but i but it's uh it's a necessity that i find really important to the form of the photograph so a lot of people in the emirates and you know around the world are not comfortable having their faces on camera and that's completely fine um i I don't believe that you have to have somebody's face present in a good portrait in order for it to to speak of, to speak to something. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and and because a lot of the photographs that I make are not necessarily portraits in the traditional sense but are you know are maybe uh kind of portraits of a of a social dynamic or a moment or an action um I think it it's really more about how bodies are are reacting to a space, how they might be sinking into it or, um, you know, receding into it or, or coming out of it. So it's almost like it started off as necessity, but then it turned into this formal device that, that became really important and actually I think spoke to the way that people, women specifically in the Emirates move in and out of public, private and public space. Um, and how these spaces can can really have a sense of anxiety, or you know, can can kind of radiate a um, yeah, a sense of I don't know nervousness or excitement, and you don't necessarily need to see the person to understand that feeling. Hmm. What do you look for in the people that you like to photograph? People I like to spend time with. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's some. Some of my friends are are. Um, some people are really great at being photographed. Some people are just, 
you know, some people just give it. Some people just give it. I have a friend um, at home who who's been in several of my photographs, and she's just she's so beautiful and has a really striking presence about her. Um, and, but most of all, because the experience of photographing is usually, I mean, it's never it's never a true collaboration. A lot of photographers use that word, but I'm I'm very hesitant to use it because it's you know at the end of the day. It's I'm you know I'm I'm still in- instructing things and and people are still generous enough to to do them, um, but it does involve a kind of back and forth of you know okay I'm in your house, what's around what do you care about what do you like what do you want to wear, um, where do you want to go, so usually I'm very lucky that the people that I photographed have been people that I enjoy spending time with and it's usually a process of it's kind of like you know when you're a kid and you have um you're just like in a room with nothing in it and you kind of have to make up this entire fantasy world out of like a stick and a ball yeah. i don't know what kind of childhood you had i think mine maybe is i make it sound a lot more bleak than it was but there's this sense of like i need to make alchemy out of the real world and mm-hmm. when it is when you do that with somebody else it really becomes an exciting thing do you think that that relation or having those relationships with the people that you photograph leads to a a stronger pH level in that alchemy, if that makes any (laughs) sense. (laughs) Yeah, most definitely, because I think there's a trust there that sometimes if I ask them to do something ridiculous, they're like, okay, you know, they're kind of used to it at this point. I have very patient friends. Uh Um, But I think also that I think I, I'm I'm not super oblivious in the sense that um, I think I think that I'm able to also like there's a there's a kind of ping pong right where uh, the things that I ask them to do are are things that almost reflect something something about them or something about the social dynamic that that is true but is just maybe heightened or dramatized for the photograph. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but but I I do think that um, you know that 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 sense of imagination or trust is really important. I want to ask you a bit about your video work because it's another important part to your practice, and I'm curious about your most recent video piece, which is the title is escaping me, but it's the Sesame Street. Oh, yeah. Peace. Everybody was invited to a party. Everybody was invited to a party. Yeah. What's it all about? So I did that. um, I was living in London in the fall, last fall, doing a residency at the Delfina Foundation, which is a a house in in London. And I was invited to be a part of this group show that was about language. And I didn't have access to a studio space. And around that time, I was collecting a lot of... Arabic to English translation books from uh, from around London. And I kind of, I started thinking about Sesame Street, watching a lot of the Muppets, but the 80s Muppets when it was really good. Yeah. Um, when, when Jim Henson was still alive. And I don't know, I was just so impressed by the artfulness of it and the way that these puppets came to life and signified or acted really human emotion. Uh, And so the Sesame Street, Sesame Street was actually on TV in the Gulf, 
in the 80s. And it was, I think, one of the first cartoons that had been um, and not only translated, but also they, they started making cartoons in the Arab world specifically for um, Gulf TV stations. So that was different in the sense that it had a little bit more religious subtext than the American Sesame Street did. But it was a really interesting way to kind of instill a sense of values in children um, and, you know, and kind of like showing them how to act in certain social situations, but also teaching them language, like, you know, teaching them the alphabet, teaching them um, sentences, teaching them how to ask for things or how to spell things. So um, I, I kind of thought of, I, th I thought, why don't I make a puppet show that kind of, that brings back that sense of, uh, of humanity and maybe also uses the puppets as, as surrogates for language. So I hand sewed these puppets. You, design, my, you designed them all yourself? I designed them. Yeah, I took, I, I took like a, a puppet class in the city that showed me how to make kind of basic hand puppets. And then I made a bunch from that. Um, and then I made a huge, there's like a big character that's me in a, in a morph suit. And I sewed features on her face. So throughout the <clears throat> throughout the video, I'm kind of like acting these little situations with these puppets. But then at the end of the video, it's revealed that the person controlling them is da 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 giant puppet. <laughs> uh, but the difference between me and them is that I do not have a mouth that moves, and they do. So uh -huh. it also then becomes this. I don't know. Maybe this like. I would, it was shown in the Emirates, and I was kind of thinking about about women and visibility and my own body being present in a video and you know how how sometimes it is necessary to use metaphor to use surrogates to talk about things that you want to talk about instead of being straightforward hmm. I, I guess the, the thing that inspired you is the artfulness of the Muppets and yeah. Sesame Street it was, it was more the Muppets it was yeah. both really because Sesame Street was also was really for adults back in the day. Well, I guess your your incarnation of it is super artful too, and <laughs> the puppets look amazing, and they're thank you. They're really cute. Yeah, they're cute. They're hanging right over here. They're hanging out. They kind of scare me sometimes because I feel like <laughs> they do have souls of their own. But with that piece, I actually really wanted to make something. At a certain point, I was like, oh my god, am I just making a kids' cartoon? But then I thought, what is the problem with that? Why yeah. why does art have to be something inaccessible that? that speaks a language that you need a master's degree to understand. I actually, I very much don't believe that. Um, and that's partially what I love about photography is because I feel like it, it is in some ways the medium that is most easily accessible or understood. But I showed the video to my nieces who were, who were uh, three and five and their, their first response was, okay, but when is it over? <laughs> so I don't know if I succeeded. But a couple of friends did send me pictures of their kids watching the, the piece when it was installed. So if I, think, I, if I can please the kids who are like the most difficult critics, then I've made it yeah, as an artist. That's the most ambitious kind of work. <laughs> I think, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I'm, I'm always super interested in, in children's books and shows and how, how powerful they can be, mm -hmm. how powerful and how... Um, smart they could be yeah what are you working on now are you doing more video work more photography work a bit of both so I'm, I'm working on multiple things i have a show coming up in a year in dubai so i've been doing research on several different things but um 
the one thing that I've been working on over the last year is uh, photographing at a place called Dragon Mart, which is the largest seller of Chinese goods outside of China and is located on a, uh, a service road in Dubai um, in two sprawling complexes called Dragon Mart 1 and Dragon Mart 2. Uh-huh. And Dragon Mart 1 is... The architecture of it is really interesting. It's kind of laid out like a marketplace almost where you have the main wall, but then it branches off into these little back alleys and side streets that zigzag. And you you can find better deals if you go in the side streets or the alleys. And, you know, people are yelling out at you, do you want this? Do you want that? I'll give you a better price. So it really functions like, you know, a kind of like the souk in Aladdin or something, except that it's all things that are made in China and it's air conditioned and they have little trains that leave every 15 minutes if you want to go from one end of the mall to the other because it's so huge. They have everything mm-hmm. that you could possibly imagine. They have food. They have toilets. They have curtains. Yeah. They have carpets. They have clothes. They have handbags. They have toys, sunglasses, hoverboards, whatever. Yeah. They have like aquarium stuff. Everything. Yeah. So um, what... I'm interested in specifically about Dragon Mart is uh, the furniture that they sell there, which is kind of like a modernized and somewhat orientalized version of Italian Baroque furniture. Yeah. So it's the kind of furniture that you know looks it, like ostentatious, and it's the kind of furniture that somebody who wanted to signify wealth would would have in their in their house. Right. However, it has become so mass produced and so cheap that uh, you know. Almost everybody, like, a lot of people have that furniture in their homes. Um, I need to be careful because I make a lot of generali- generalizations sometimes. <laughs> but uh, most people I know have that kind of furniture in their homes. So um, I'm kind of chronicling that furniture, both in Dragon Mart and also in people's homes, is this kind of this feedback loop of, of design and uh, demand that maybe uh, signifies the history of a trade relationship and um, you know what our kind what what our ideas about design say about us about our history um, about our values so yeah that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm working on right now so there's a couple images on the wall that are that are from Dragon Mart or from from different malls around Dubai how do you see it manifesting itself or you're just kind of you're not there yet I'm not there yet, but it's um it's a lot of it's sort of like the research phase now and I think that the video I would really like the video to kind of reflect the experience of being in Dragon Mart where it's kind of like a constant assault on the senses. Like mm-hmm. people are giving you food all the time, food samples. Um kind of love that though. Yeah. Costco food samples, the best. Exactly. It's kind of it's like that except like baklava <laughs> and you know some try this oat cracker. It's like a really weird mix of of different foods yeah yeah so so i'm working on that and then i'm also i'm working on another show that that looks at the, the history of food presentation um and like looking at how some of the food traditions that we've adopted in the gulf are uh are leftovers from british colonialism which is a history that we rarely talk about because we've kind of glossed over it in history books is like well the british helped us become a union but no they were they were colonizers they were there for a reason um so things like tea sandwiches you know like tiny little tea sandwiches huge in the gulf Mm. 
you talked about getting into photography and how it was really a couple of teachers that you had at Yale who really made all the difference. Mm-hmm. Now that you're teaching, what's your philosophy? How do you how do you approach it? <laughs> it's always changing. I really strongly believe in encouraging students to discover to make uh to make self-discovery an important part of their lives to always be curious to always be looking for things and i guess the main thing specifically with photography i think it's really important for people to think about their own you know how they kind of formulate their own code of ethics i think one of the really delicate things about making photographs is that there's this constant question of truth or responsibility and and representation and you know does it matter that i'm showing the truth does it matter that i'm um, i'm representing people in the right way and i think in, in a certain way, it can be frustrating because painters are exempt from that responsibility. Sculptors are exempt. You know, nobody will really ask a painter, did this really happen? Right. Um, so I think that the, the best thing that photography can do when it's functioning at its most exciting, um, its most exciting level, is that it can be a, a tool for, for connection between people, but also, you know, between two people or you know multiple people but also between somebody and and the world that uh, that they live in and it can invite them to think about how they exist in it um you know how how they move through space and how they might be um how they might maybe exercise certain powers that they have so i'm always inviting students to to think about that and to be open to the greater possibilities of being an artist in the world, you know, and, 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 and to, to decide what, what issues really matter to them apart from just learning how to take a beautiful photograph. Well, I think that's a, that's a great note to end on. Thanks so much for having me here. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for being here. That was my conversation with Farrell Kasimi that we recorded in Williamsburg. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhame. Music in this episode by Michelle Macklem, Damien Lazarus, Poddington Bear, and the Monks. If you like the show, take a sec and give us a review on iTunes. It helps others discover the show, and we really appreciate it. For more information on the show, visit us at www.magichourpodcast.org. Thanks for tuning in, and see you next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.